Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in the seventh chapter today and reading verses 1 through 6. And again, if you have your scriptures with you, let me invite you to turn there and to follow along as I read. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, She is called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. And so, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Every once in a while, you will see an article that focuses on some of the stranger laws that remain on the books in various municipalities. For example, in Ottumwa, Iowa, it is illegal for any man within the corporate city limits to wink at any female with whom he is unacquainted which it seems to me makes it extremely difficult for a fellow to get acquainted. Now, having been to Otumwa, Iowa, I find it difficult to believe that winking was so out of control that such legislation was necessary, but be that as it may, there it is. In Zion, Illinois, it is illegal for anyone to give cats dogs or domesticated animals, a lighted cigar. Now, don't you wish you knew what the story behind that was? I am assuming that cigarettes or pipes are okay, but just no stogies. In New York City, citizens may not greet each other by putting one's thumb to the nose and wiggling the fingers which answers the age-old question as to why the Three Stooges never visited New York. And finally, in Oklahoma, it is illegal to have a sleeping donkey in your bathtub after 7 p.m. 
Afternoon naps are permitted, but they need to be out of there before the Wheel of Fortune comes on. So. Now I bring that up because such laws as these are scattered throughout the vast collection of laws that have been created over 250 years of civilization here in this part of the world, and they are laws that no one pays any attention to anymore, for they are clearly outdated and silly. If a police officer were to cite you for a stray wink in Otumwa, Iowa, I seriously doubt that the judge would impose the required fine and would probably scold the officer for wasting everybody's time. But all of us are aware that we live in a land where the law plays a significant role in our lives. Try speeding through a school zone or committing insurance fraud, or lying under oath to a judge, and see whether or not you're allowed to ignore those laws. And this is at the root of the issue that so pervades the arguments that Paul is making in this epistle to the Romans. This is a congregation of Jews and Gentiles where the role of the law would have been woven through their understanding of how you go about living faithfully unto God. And it is not far removed from the understanding that pervades the thinking of many Christians even today. There are all sorts of folks who dutifully occupy pews on every Lord's Day for whom the law lingers in the hallways of their minds, whispering to them that they ought to obey or else. But Paul has been making a lengthy argument for several chapters now that there is no one who is justified by keeping the law. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, he said back in chapter 3. And his argument has been that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But he's also been making the case that the law is not disposable. Even though we are justified by faith, that does not open the door to antinomianism or an anti-law perspective. He says at the end of chapter 3, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And he answers his own rhetorical question by saying, On the contrary, we uphold the law. All of which creates a very real question. What role then does law play in the life of the regenerate believer? How should we, who have been justified before God by faith, understand God's law in regards to our lives? If we are not justified by law but by faith, yet we cannot ignore the law but must uphold it, then just how must we understand it? And to answer this question, Paul makes use of an illustration. And we need to pause here for just a second and acknowledge that Paul's illustration is not the same thing as an analogy. In an analogy, you have a very simple and steady comparison from beginning to end. One of the more famous ones is life is like a box of chocolate. You never know what you're going to get, right? That's an analogy. 
But what Paul is offering here is an illustration that has several angles to it. It doesn't remain steady from beginning to end, but rather Paul is borrowing various aspects from it to fit his purposes. You will see in a moment what I'm talking about. Paul's use of this particular illustration is because it would have been universally understood as well as accepted by anyone who would have heard or read his letter. Both the Jews and the Gentiles in this Roman congregation would have agreed to what Paul was saying without disagreement or dissent. I want you to notice that Paul addresses them as brothers here, which he first did in the opening of his letter in verse 15. He will continue to do so nine times throughout this letter. He addresses them as brothers, giving us insight into the relationship that he felt towards them, even though they've never laid eyes on one another. Now, some have made the case that Paul is thinking primarily here of the Jewish contingent within the congregation. For he goes on to say, For I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, if that be true, then we would have to make the assumption that the Gentiles are ignorant of law, which would not be the case. The Roman Empire, like any organized society, was governed by laws and regulations as much as anyone. So I don't believe Paul is singling out the Jews. He's simply affirming that all these good folks are familiar with law that serves as the basis for the illustration that he's about to make. And specifically, Paul is about to offer an illustration based upon marriage law. Whether it has been carefully articulated in a written code of the most advanced societies or is simply the accepted unwritten mores in the most primitive of tribal communities, marriage is universally understood and is a serious thing. When it comes to marriage, there is an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong when it comes to the binding of a man and a woman in matrimony. When I am preparing a couple for their wedding day and we are rehearsing the ceremony here and we reach that point where the bride and the groom will state their vows to one another, I always seek to impress upon them the gravity of the moment by telling them that what I am about to do is extremely powerful to the degree that it takes several attorneys lots and lots of billing hours to undo. At which point they usually laugh nervously like you just did, but it is true. To legally unbind a man and a woman from their marriage vows is costly. Well, Paul knows that the law surrounding marriage is universally understood, and so his readers will see the points that he is making here when he begins to talk about a married woman who is bound to her husband by law. And as he proceeds, he knows that no one is going to miss the point or raise any objections. There also would have been no one who would disagree with his premise or his presupposition that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. 
Death is the one condition under which law no longer has a hold on you. You might be homeless, childless, and penniless, owing millions of dollars to the Internal Revenue Service who has sued you for it, but once you're dead, the law can no longer touch you. Everyone will accept this premise. And so Paul takes this premise and couples it with marriage law and makes the point that a married woman is bound by law to her husband for as long as they both shall live. She is not legally free to go out and marry a different man. To do so would invite societal shame to be directed towards her. But once her husband dies, all that changes. Death changes the relationship. And this is the primary point that Paul wants to make here. Death changes the relationship. The relationship isn't simply altered or tweaked a little bit, but rather it is abolished. When Paul declares in verse 2 that upon the death of the husband, the woman is released from the law of marriage, the word translated as released there is much stronger than that. It means that it is now null and void. It is abolished forever would be a stronger sense of what he means here. And what is translated as the law of marriage is literally the law of the husband. And so Paul is declaring that death abolishes the law of the husband and the wife is no longer considered to be a wife but has been set completely free from the dominion of the husband. At that moment, she is free to marry another and all of society will accept it. Legally, she may marry a different man and not be put to shame for having done so for death changed the first relationship completely. Now, this is at the root of Paul's argument. And we need not go back and review all that Paul said about the death of Christ and how that changed everything and how our union with Christ resulted in our old man being crucified with him and how that brought to nothing the body of sin in us. I trust that we have a grasp on that still. But that's his major point here. When Christ died, because we were in him, it changed everything for us, including our relationship to the law. We were suddenly free from the law in terms of being under its dominion and its influence. Remember, Paul said when the law came in, it increased the trespass. Now, he did not mean by that that the law was responsible for us sinning, but rather the law increased our realization that we were sinning. It's no different than when you breeze through a new town at 45 miles per hour and the residents consider it to be wrong to do so because they are accustomed to driving their streets at only 25 miles per hour. It is not until the city posts speed limit signs indicating what the speed limit is in their city that you become aware of your sinfulness. Suddenly, the law defines what is legal, what is not, and the next time you drive through that town, you realize that you were sinning before. And what Paul is saying here is that when we were justified before God by faith alone, in Christ alone, the law lost its dominion over us as a means of justification. 
we no longer have to worry about keeping the law in an effort to be justified in God's sight. Everything changed in that regard with the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Now, we said a moment ago that this was an illustration and not an analogy, and you may have already picked up on the fact that the woman is free to marry again, not when she dies, but when the husband dies, and yet we are free from the law when we die in Christ. Again, Paul's not attempting to create a perfect analogy. He's using an illustration to show how death makes a decisive difference where the law is concerned. And he does it once again when he indicates that upon the death of her first husband, the woman is free to remarry and to enter a new relationship. It's not an autonomous relationship. She's not suddenly become the one in the position of authority, but she freely submits herself to the authority of another husband. And Paul introduces this major point with another one of his but now statements. You may remember back in chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And then in chapter 6, verse 22. But now, that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And now we hear it again. But now. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. But to what end? So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And the point that Paul is making here is that once we were free from the law in terms of justification... We have not been set free to be a law unto ourselves, doing whatever we choose to do. We're not autonomous. While the death of Christ changed everything for us in relationship to the law, Paul says now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In other words, we have a new husband. When we responded in faith to the enlivening influence of the Holy Spirit and we were raised to new life in Christ, we became a part of the church, the bride of Christ. And it is under His authority that we now live and move and have our being. And it is Him whom we serve. Now this is a statement of liberation. Paul is declaring that the peace we have with God has brought about a release from the law that does not free us unto ourselves, but liberates us to a new way of living that is governed by the indwelling Spirit of God. And Paul will say more about this in chapter 8, but the essence of it is that we are now indwelt, led, and supported by the very real presence of God that is the governing factor in our lives leading us towards holiness. The Spirit is engaged in a transformation of us from one degree of glory to another, he says to the Corinthians, in preparation for the day when we will see the Lord face to face. So back to our earlier question. As those who have been freed from the law, what role does the law play in our lives now? 
in one sense, the law has lost its power over us because of our death in the death of Christ. And now, a more powerful presence has superseded it. As those who have been raised to new life in Christ, the Spirit of God has taken over the responsibility of leading us in the paths of righteousness. We read from the prophecy of Jeremiah just a moment ago, that moment when God declared that He would make a new covenant with His people, unlike the old covenant that relied upon the people willfully following Him. They did not do that because they had not the power to do that. They were incapable of holy living because of their stubborn pride and sinful nature. None of us could have done so. But did you notice how God characterized their rebellion? They broke the covenant, though I was their husband, God said. In other words, though they were like a wife, they did shameful things, prostituting themselves as they chased after foreign idols. But God declared through the prophet Jeremiah that a day would come when God would establish a new covenant with His people that would not be like the old covenant. This covenant will be characterized by something new. God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now friends, this has been accomplished through the death of Christ. You see, God is just when He forgives our iniquity and remembers our sin no more because the Son of God took all that sin to the cross and bore the wrath of God in our place. And in return, Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. He gave us His righteousness in the same way that our sin was given to Him. But in this exchange, our debt unto God was paid and we were washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. And you see, because God has done this great thing in the lives of those who belong to Christ, the old written code has been replaced by God's own spirit of holiness. When God commanded, you shall be holy, for I am holy, that was not an idle suggestion, but was a future reality. When Jesus said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, he was not using hyperbole, he was foretelling an eternal truth that his audience could not conceive. But after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit of God baptized the Bride of Christ, bathing her in divine power and equipping her with spiritual gifts designed to live faithfully unto God, she began a spiritual transformation that would make her ready for the day when her husband would return from the Father's house where he has been making ready for the great marriage feast of the Lamb, preparing a place for us. And this is how Paul is able to claim to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Beloved, we no longer need to be plagued with a sense of dread where the law is concerned. For we have died to the law through the body of Christ so that we may belong to another to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. And this is how God is sanctifying us, not through our obedience to a written code on tablets of stone, but by His own indwelling Spirit who is leading us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might pray together.